Introducing your hosts with wit beyond measure, Michael, loyal and just, Haley, ambitious and cunning, Shelby, daring and chivalrous, Savannah. Welcome to Hold My Butterbeer, a podcast about all things Wizarding World canon. Hello, everyone. It is currently the 27th of July while we are recording this, and we just wanted to acknowledge that it's been a whole year of us recording Hold My Butterbeer. So a huge thank you to everybody that's tuned in with us, that's followed us on Instagram, that's sent us a message or a question. Uh, Tonight, we're going to do a really fun mailbag and just answer questions about canon and talk about the last year of us like doing this whole thing. So it's going to be fun. A year. Can you believe that? And what a year. What a year. It's been been a crazy year. Yeah. The last 12 months have been a pretty wild ride. And I don't even know. It's like, it's a lot. It is a lot. And if you would have told me this is how this year would have been last year, being in quarantine, dealing with COVID-19, like I would never have believed it. Wild year. And I'm sure so many people can relate. Yeah, we wanted to touch on that, too, about how we're all coping with COVID and quarantine, uh, all of us being in different states. It's been a little different for everybody. And generally, we're having a pretty bad time. So I just wanted to touch on that. And I mean, how are you guys doing? How are how's everybody doing? Listeners, how are you doing? I just want to see everybody's holding up because I know that it's been really challenging in ways that no one expected. And just kind of all around a generally pretty, pretty bad time. Yeah, it's definitely been a crazy year um, for all of us, for the whole planet. And for Harry Potter fans, we've also been going through a lot. And we've addressed that several times on this podcast already. We like even on the podcast, we've sometimes been struggling to come up with like, so what should we talk about? Like what, what's important enough to talk about? And then, um, and some of the stuff that we're going to bring in our kind of our mailbag episode today is, um, is sometimes it can still just be fun. Like we can still just talk about Harry Potter and talk about how silly some of this stuff is and talk about random characters and random candy and still enjoy, uh, the things that we love about Harry Potter a lot and uh, preparing for this episode today was really fun because uh, getting to read over um, the kind of questions and then theories that got sent in that I think that's been my favorite thing about making this podcast is y'all getting back to us and saying, wow, I've never thought about that before. And (laughs) like, this is selfish, but like that the canon, the levels of canon have been embraced because they have been very, very heavily embraced, which I would, if Michael, if you told me that like a year ago, I would have laughed at you because nope. we were all like, okay, Michael, sure. But Way people love it. <laughs> and that makes me they really should. happy it's great. <laughs> because it's a totally crazy, needlessly complicated system. Um, but needlessly complicated. <laughs> but people have really liked it. And, and I, I like that too. So I'm really grateful for the show and for the four of us and, and for all of y'all listening. Yeah. And to kind of piggyback on what Michael said about like hearing what y'all have said it's really inspired us to get back into the show I'll speak for myself when I say this like I have been kind of dealing with like not liking anything about Harry Potter which is so opposite of how I've lived my life since I was a teenager and then it only like grown and grown to meeting Michael and our relationship has just been like Harry Potter was one of the is the biggest thing like in our lives like we've our whole relationship has had Harry Potter as like the glue of feels like sometimes, you know, other than like personalities and all that stuff. And but, love and whatever. Uh, whatever. You know, but it's <laughs> it's always been it's it's been a huge part of my life. Like it's it's a part of my identity. It really is. And I've struggled just with this kind of separating the art from the artist and redefining my love of Harry Potter as something new. Seeing all the notes that we've gotten from you guys, all the feedback, all of the questions really reignited the spark for Harry Potter for me um, recently. Um, I guess in like the past month, I've, I've really, really needed that to kind of to embrace my joy again. So thank you for me, for all you guys for writing to us. And it really, it really helped motivate me to do this episode. 
we we've been having trouble about what we want to talk about because again with the state of the world like our feelings about candy and the wizarding world just didn't really feel that important and we really didn't want to give any more airtime to the author for being transphobic and it just has felt kind of daunting and not as fun as we once thought that it was and so this episode has been amazing to prepare for and get excited because people have said such sweet things to us which is insane to think that people that we don't actually know listen to us talk about Harry Potter canon. <laughs> so just a huge thank you to everybody that's been supportive. It's been a pretty wild ride and we're just really, really grateful that we get to talk to each other about weird Harry Potter tidbits that are not useful in our everyday life. So... <laughs> And we want to take a moment to address, so some of you might have noticed, because we know that it got listens, um, that episode 14, Savage Queens, has been taken down. Um, we did a whole thing on Instagram where we did a bracket about voting for Savage Queens. And uh, you will see now that that episode is missing. That episode is no longer there. It was pointed out to us by a really compassionate fan. Um, so it wasn't a criticism. It was like a um, an, an awareness kind of, hey, have you thought about this type of thing? Thinking about the word savage and thinking about the context and the history behind that word and the way that it's been used um, to dehumanize Native American and Indigenous populations for centuries and centuries. And we know that Savage Queen does not carry necessarily that connotation. And we know that the vast majority of our listeners aren't going to think about it that way. Um, however, we are trying to know better and do better and kind of recognizing that the word savage has that connotation to it and has that history and has that past. We wanted to be sensitive to that. And so we decided that it was best just to take the episode down and move on from there. It's not up to us to decide if we've been offensive. If someone has told us that it was offensive, then it's just our responsibility to learn and do better. So uh, that's what we decided to do. We may in the future end up doing a piss poor witch rating show, which I think would be fun, but we'll see what, what the future brings. And at the end of the day, I think we all know that Minerva McGonagall is an absolute treasure of a character when it comes to all of the characters in the Harry Potter and Fantastic Beasts series. I guess technically we all arrive at the same conclusion, you know, whether it's from everyone else's voting in the brackets or from our ranking from that episode. So at least we all can agree on on that one thing. That's like really, really, um, really nice to know. That's the most important part. Yeah. And also given like how insensitive J.K. Rowling's portrayals of, you know, Native American peoples in her previous writings and whatever. I appreciate that somebody pointed that out to us that, but maybe the use of the word of savage was probably something that we should be thinking about, even if we're not thinking about it all the time. Okay, so now we're going to dive into our mailbag. And so, so many of y'all have left us either voice messages or messages on Instagram. And so we pulled all of those together to talk about them today uh, so that other people can hear some of these awesome theories. Um, The first one is going to be a voice message that we received. You can actually leave us a voice message by going to anchor.fm slash holdmybutterbeer. And there's a feature there where you can leave us a voice message. So um, this is one we received and you can feel free to do this same and maybe yours will get played on the episode hey guys um i am a listener from arkansas my name's kaylee um i kind of flew through your podcast in the last week and a half i've really enjoyed listening and nerding out along with you guys um i really feel like that i'm pretty similar to michael i think that i'm definitely the michael of my friend group if we were to record a podcast like this and i guess i i wanted to send in a message because I got to thinking when I was listening to the spells episode about Gamp's elemental laws of transfiguration. Um, and I was wondering if those laws kind of only apply to transfiguration spells and if there are other laws or other laws that would apply to, uh, like charms and jinxes and hexes. Um, and if those specific laws only apply to transfigurations, um, instead of everything, So just wondering about your thoughts on that. Uh, Thanks again for the great podcast. I can't wait for more. Bye. First of all, I love hearing your voice. Like, that was so cool. Thank you. (laughs) I appreciate, Kaylee, that you uh, feel like you're the Michael of the group. So do I. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
And so, uh, so the question was, so do we think that the Gantt's law of elemental transfiguration, what, what kind of other laws do we think maybe are out there? And do like, does the Gantt's law of elemental transfiguration apply to things like charms, hexes, and uh, other magical things? Do you think so, Michael? I absolutely I think they do. Shelby, what were you going to say? I was say, I don't think I understand the question. So it's like we've got Gamp's elemental law of transfiguration, but we don't really hear about the other laws like Herbert's law of charm work or whatever that you, you can do X and Y, but you can't do Z sort of thing. Is that so, real or did you make that up as an example? I just made that up as an example. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, who the fuck is Herbert? Like, what? <laughs> you know, Herbert. That was in you know. uh, Book of Spells, uh, the most elusive of all Harry Potter canon. So like, no, that was... A- you that with a straight face, I'll believe it. So like, you yeah. can't do that. You've done this before and it was real, so... I can make up all kinds of canon because y'all haven't played Book of Spells. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I would think that there would definitely be other laws out there that pertain to other types of spell work because that's basically like they don't just go to school to learn incantations. Um, they go to the school to learn what the limitations of magic are because you definitely can't do everything because like with Transfiguration, you can't you can't create food out of nothing. You can make it bigger and you can multiply it, but you can't just summon food from nothing. And I think the same thing is with money you can't like just create real money uh, eventually it'll fade or you can detect that it's fake in some way so there are rules and we yeah, like rules I, mean, I feel like we i know we love we love a rule around here i think that <laughs> gamp's law was only important because like it was to explain away them not being able to just create food while they were on the run and so that's the only reason why we even heard about that one i don't know that we would have heard about it at all if that wasn't the case so i'm sure you're right michael that there's plenty of laws about what you can and can't do it's just we haven't learned about them because they weren't relevant to the plot line i also just pulled up i had to i had to do it there's professor croker's law from cursed child that's the law that states that five hours is the longest someone can go back in time without a possibility of serious harm coming to the traveler yes. or time itself. Oh my God. Yes. So there's, yeah. Okay. So I get that. There's actually, it seems like there's a lot of laws when I'm like looking at the wiki. What are some other ones? Um, so there's also, there's, so there's Professor Croker's law. Gamps is here. This one's from Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Chapter 18. It's called Gulpalot's Third Law. Mm. It's a law for making antidotes and says that the antidote for a blended poison that is a poison that's created by mixing several other poisons together cannot simply be created by finding the antidotes to each separate poison in the blended whole and then mixing them together. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, so that's in advanced potion making. So yeah, I guess I guess there would be other laws that we just like don't really hear about or anything. It's things that you know obviously exist in nature. Somebody took the time to create a theory for it and probably published some parchments about it and called it a day. I also wonder if there's different theories for different like regions because if you figure out how to do magic differently, like I wonder how many differences there are in the U.S. versus the U.K. about what you can and can't do with magic. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I'm sure that's right. But are these more like natural laws, like the law? Of yeah, physics? they are for sure. But that's what I'm wondering is like how many of them are like a little different because obviously, like wandless magic, there there may be more possibilities than not. Like, obviously, mm. some of them are completely universal, but I wonder how much of it is, like, cultural as well. Sure, yeah. Interesting. But it's like we talked about in our Time Terror episode, like, all the rules make it just so much more fun because then you can actually, like, feel like it's real. <laughs> if you just could just do magic and everything just was so magical, then it wouldn't feel as real. <laughs> yeah, because it makes it feel more relatable to the real world. Because when growing up and going through science classes or philosophy classes or whatever, you found out all about these theories. Um, and and so it's just it's like adjacent to what you know, which I think is what makes Harry Potter like what, what draws what made it so popular is because it's so close to real life. And it's not just total whimsy nonsense all over the place chaos like some fantasy novels can tend to be it's like no i know this like i i go to class i this is all familiar to me but with that magical bend to it so i think i love that that's included in the series it's like yeah there's theorists and yeah there's laws and because there's wizard old wizard professors who are coming up with all this stuff sure yeah. books. It has like oh, a grounding effect to it yeah for sure 
Shelby, to your point about like nature and stuff, Voldemort broke himself into seven pieces and that's never been done before. So I wonder how much of it's like never been done before. So they don't know what would happen. And like, I don't know, that kind of stuff. Thank you so much for submitting that, Kaylee. This next one is from Robbie. What do you think about the idea that Albus took Hagrid's wand pieces and used the Elder Wand to fix it, then disguised as the Umbrella and told Hagrid he did his best? So Hagrid never knew his wand was fully functional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. It seems I like a very Dumbledore thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree with this. I don't think, I, I think the con, like the subtext in the books would have you believe that that is why his wand never seemed to operate without any problems at all because it was fixed by the Elder Wand. Yeah, that, that, that checks out for me. Same. So then if that's the case, is it specifically Hagrid's own capabilities that are, uh, what's a nice way to put it? Limit, limit, like, yeah, like lacking, less than satisfactory. I don't think so, because he really, I mean, technically only had a like a third year education, second or third year. The rest he kind of learned on his own. So he's kind of like self-taught wizard. So I, I would think that would check out. So when we saw Harry's wand get broken in Deathly Hallows, like it stopped working. And then when Ron's wand got broken in Chamber of Secrets, it totally malfunctioned every time he tried to use it. So I think like Hagrid does do some magic, like he cast Aguaminti and he helps his he uses engorgement charms on his pumpkins and so the magic he's got limited magic but it works whenever he you know right. is able to do it so if, if if he had two halves of a broken wand concealed inside an umbrella it would make more sense if there was like a fully functional wand in there and just Hagrid's kind of third year knowledge wasn't that great and so I think that makes total sense is there anything specifically in the books that sort of give the impression that Hag or or even explicitly state that Hagrid isn't all that great at doing magic? I don't ever remember them saying stating explicitly like he's not good at performing magic. Like the things that you just stated, I don't remember those being like mishaps or anything. I remember Draco making fun of him, saying that he like occasionally gets drunk and then tries to do magic and sets his bed on fire. I but remember who doesn't? <laughs> right? <laughs> that's having a good time. That's I know that's just a move. Capacity yeah. for magic, <laughs> and he does talk about not being allowed to do magic because his wand was snapped and he was expelled, and so he was not allowed to become a fully fledged wizard by ministry standards. So hmm, that's a good point. Because every time we do see him try to do magic, it's it's generally successful. I don't think we see him flub too often. How many spells do you think that he does that he doesn't actually know well, though? Hmm, probably all of them. Yeah, because I mean, you think about Harry, Ron, and Hermione, like they're up in the library, they're up studying late at night, like they put a lot of work into their studies. And he just went a different career path. He put a lot of work into like a type of magic that would best suit him for um, being a caretaker. I think that like setting your bed on fire, like, I don't know if that's true. That's Draco just talking shit. But like, <laughs> it's like his, I mean, the type of magic that he does, like the engorging on the pumpkins, I'm sure like that was good, impressive magic, because that was the type of magic that he valued the most and was that he used the most around Hogwarts. Right. That's what I mean. Yeah, like, is it stuff that he he knows well, so, like, he's able to do those flawlessly because, like, those are the ones that he's good at. Mm, his go-to. I think, I think repetition, obviously, would help and everything. Yeah. And then the wand so, remembers that and stuff, like the cheese charming situation we were talking about. Then yeah. I wonder... <laughs> He'd be really good at cheese because it's the only charms you ever cast. <laughs> Then I wonder, though, what's the point in telling Hagrid that the wand, I like, I just, I don't understand. I think I don't because... understand why, why Dumbledore would say that. I don't, I don't get it. Like, why even bother? Saying that it doesn't necessarily work? Not saying that it's like fully repaired, fully functional. Because you know what I mean? if you didn't have the Elder Wand, you wouldn't be able to do that. Also, Hagrid's not very reliable. He's kind of a big mouth. And he's not supposed to be casting magic. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it was more of like a keep this on the down low, like your wand might backfire and like it's going to be your fault kind of thing. Like to be really, really, really careful. I don't know if that was like kind of the mentality, but also no ordinary wand. Granted, I don't know that like, I don't know that Hagrid would have put that together either. I don't know if he would have just been like, whoa, Dumbledore's really good because he admired him from the jump. So I don't know if that like would have mattered, but I imagine if you have the elder wand and you fix somebody's wand you're 
not like going to tell them how it happened, even if like they probably wouldn't get it. And then too, it's like Dumbledore is living with the fear of his life with that wand. So like if he does anything to slip up to have any sort of knowledge that anyone could place or track down that's like led to Dumbledore, he wouldn't do it. Like he's he's True. too sneaky and too smart to like have anything lead back to him. So the re- the way he was never caught is because he lived his life so humbly, or at least as humbly as he could. Because if he was out and brash and be like, don't tell anyone, but I can fix your wand. Like someone could have figured that out just from like that knowledge. And I also wonder if it was a loyalty thing. Like he already knew that Hagrid was loyal to him, but he knew that he'd be loyal to him for the rest of his life if he played his cards right. Kind, You know what I mean? And like gave Hagrid a job and kept him on the grounds and like all of that. Yeah, for sure. sure. That checks out. That was really smart, Robbie. Thank you. Yeah, I'm remembering two other instances from Chamber of Secrets where Agrid says that he was going to Dumbledore's office to put an enchantment around the chicken coop because he thought that something was killing all the chickens. I mean, it was Ginny. So he, he was getting Dumbledore's permission to put some kind of enchantment. So I guess he's good enough to do kind of barrier enchantments around that. And um, and to y'all's point about like fixing a broken wand and being knowledgeable of the Elder Wand's power, if he had known that Dumbledore could seamlessly repair wands, which you're not really supposed to be able to do. Wouldn't he have suggested that to Ron after mm. like the whole slug incident? He would have been like, oh, well, you can go to Dumbledore. He'll fix it right up for you. Right. Um, that's so, very true. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Actually, so that's, that actually solves a lot of questions. That's, wow. Never thought of that before in my life. <laughs> 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 that's really great. Great job, Robbie. That was a good one. Shelby, I think you're taking the next one, right? Yeah, I don't mind taking this one. We also got a message from one of our listeners, Katie, who said, uh, going back to our candy episode where we were discussing specifically the film adaptation of Prisoner of Azkaban, we talked about whether or not Harry stole Neville's lollipop or if it got stuck on his invisibility cloak. Katie told us that she rewatched the scene and pointed out that there's a clear upward jerk to the lollipop as it comes out of Neville's hands, indicating that, I love this, Harry, the boy who steals Potter, did in fact take Neville's candy. Uh, Katie also pointed out that in the books, Neville isn't mentioned in the first Hogsmeade trip, and Harry does not use his invisibility cloak the first time he goes. Neville's banned from the second trip due to losing the Gryffindor Tower passwords. So according to Michael's first level (laughs) canon... The whole exchange never happened. So it's movie canon only. I just wanted to double check on this because it absolutely tears me up thinking that Harry Potter would do that to Neville. I pulled up the, uh, specifically the gif of that motion. I appreciate you, Katie. I don't know if I'm convinced because it goes against everything that I believe about sweet little Harry. I'm not convinced that he totally definitely steals it, but I think that you're making a really compelling argument and I'm probably going to lose this one. I also did pull up the script and all that it says in the Prisoner of Azkaban script is up ahead, Neville prepares to lick the lollipop in his hand when it simply floats from his fingers and out the door so it will remain a mystery and (laughs) hotly debated until we can get answers from i don't know who's who's responsible there steve cloves i guess because he's a screenwriter so shelby i'm gonna add to this i i appreciate you katie i really do i appreciate this uh this angle that we have not looked at but If Harry Potter did, in fact, steal this lollipop, it would have become invisible because it would have been inside the cloak while he was eating it. Mm. So not just floating underneath Mm -hmm. because if he took it to eat it, like took it on purpose, it would have disappeared entirely because he would be eating it. So I'm sticking with Harry would never steal a lollipop from Neville Longbottom, but that's my own um, (laughs) situation here. This is why Prisoner of Azkaban is the worst movie. Because <laughs> it makes sense on neither level. <laughs> oh, gosh. So I, I'm just going to subscribe to first level canon and that Neville wasn't happened. there. 
he he was banned uh harry was under the invisibility cloak so no this is not that trip sorry um i have something to say say it girl i've seen katie i just rewatched the scene he definitely grabs that lollipop and i've always felt that i think katie i feel validated and i'm with you harry is a little jerk and he stole that lollipop he did not he did not i'm dying on this hill Haley. he did do it screenshotted the scene and I will post it wherever it needs to be posted of the lollipop being jerked up Neville's poor little face going what and then I guess it's not for his little cannon so we can we can call that what it is but it happened and it was stolen and I'm done with what I have to say hold on I'm looking at the gif he didn't eat it though yeah I'm not convinced I'm not I do think I do think that it's possible that he could have just nabbed it on his way out the door like Say you have a thin piece of fabric and you grab it anyway. His hand could have remained under the cloak as he grabbed it. But I don't know. I don't like to think that he's that mean-spirited. He was on a mission. He could care less about Neville's dumb lollipop. Harry Potter has a lot of big business going on. (laughs) He does have big business happening. But were we ever mean-spirited when we were 13 years old? Oh, God, yeah. I was the most (laughs) mean-spirited. So maybe... (laughs) Maybe we shouldn't die on this hill. I just, I, I just wanted to squish Neville's joy for fun. Neville's uh, also used I, a I, lot I, as right. comic relief. Yeah, I guess. And I also have to say, in in my opinion, I think this movie has like the worst character development. So I could see them writing that in to be like, ha ha, boys being funny, boys being boys, something like that, and then trying to make it funny, but it just comes off weird and like it's not, just mean. All right, yeah, you, know, like, you might be character. right. <laughs> This might be a character choice from the higher ups and not an actual action of Harry Potter. So I'm still not buying that Harry did this, that someone from above has forced him to do so. Thanks, Holly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, we know happens. that he's not under the Imperius curse because he's under the invisibility cloak, which protects you from that kind of enchantment. So that's not happening. All right. You know what? We can't talk about this anymore. <laughs> <You're right>. Podcast <laughs> over. <laughs> It's been a good year, you guys. It's over now. (laughs) (laughs) And we never spoke again. Katie, I'm sorry. We don't have conclusive answers for you. (laughs) And now a word about our sponsors. Now, back to the show. Next, we have Kaylee. Might be a different Kaylee. Might be the same. I don't know. Kaylee asks, in the fourth book, after the Priori Incantatum in the graveyard, how is the Triwizard Cup still a port key? She also cites that at the beginning of Goblet of Fire at the World Cup, the port keys were just haphazardly discarded into a box when the wizards arrived, which made her think that they went back to their original inanimate object status, which is how I always thought of it. So I don't know... Didn't they want Harry to come back? Yes. So it was enchanted both ways because the goal was for him to come back and then Moody was there, fake Moody was there to collect him. Exactly. So that's why I think that it was a two-way because it wasn't just like a one-way trip sort of thing. It's it's He went, was going there for a specific purpose. He sent Harry there for a specific reason and then they would send his body back to make it look like an accident. So it would want to be both ways so that they could easily transport his body back after he was killed, according to their plan. That's how I see it. After Harry was killed. Right, after Harry was killed. Except he wasn't. Of course, it didn't go the way they wanted it to, but I feel like that's because at the the Triwizard or the uh, World Cup, <clears throat> the World Cup, those were just kind of like manky old boots and whatever. That it was all just a massive organizational plan. But the Triwizard Cup, like that, they were working on that plan for the whole year, and so I think that's why it was important for it to just just to teleport you back after the graveyard scene. So this next comment comes from Sarah. Who says, I'm listening to episode 7, and you've got me thinking about the science behind dragon heartstrings. Veins and arteries in the heart are very strong, and often when you cook a heart for eating, the meat can come off in strings. As for vegan ones, interestingly, there is a drag flower and a dragon heart geranium. The image I get is more of a wand with a seed core, like a seed of strings, and not necessarily a preserved plant matter. I really do love how you guys explore canon encourages your listeners to think more deeply. Oh, thank you, Sarah. That is a beautiful thought, too. 
I know exactly those geraniums too, and they're gorgeous. I'm glad that you brought them up. I have such a nice image in my head now of those pretty purple flowers. Would you rather have that in your wand than a uh, string off of a dragon heart? Me personally? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would definitely (laughs) rather have a a wand that's got flower parts on the inside of it instead of like, I don't know, just weird. Yeah, like like some meat, like... (laughs) Meat one. I don't know. It's just gross. <laughs> I don't really think about it, but Ooh, and you know how now that I'm like, thinking about it. No, I actually wouldn't <laughs> enjoy that. I was just thinking how like how wizards and witches get buried with their wands. So like if you're if you were buried with that wand with the cool like dragon flower in it, that uh, that that would like grow from your grave and you'd have this beautiful flower uh, from where yeah. your wand grew. That's a beautiful it's thought. Michael, that's so nice. <laughs> I love this way better than dragon guts. Yeah, did we ever come to like a conclusion in that episode of the one episode about where the strings come from or do we just kind of get annoyed and disgusted by it and then stop talking <laughs> I, I think we just we, like... talked about it and then stopped i don't think there was a conclusive uh answer to that so i appreciate yeah. this so yeah. much i didn't know that heart meat came off in strings that's a disgusting thought but i guess it makes <laughs> sense because i mean like you think the heart organ like it has to get it's a pump and it has to like have all that room to get bigger and then room to get smaller. So I guess it makes sense that it would be made that way. We need to get a nurse on here to tell us about anatomy. But so that's very interesting because I didn't know that hearts were made that way. So a dragon heart string, if if hearts are stringy by nature, then it makes sense that um, you'd get a bunch of strings off of a dragon heart that you harvested. I think a lot of that ones. was our conversation actually, Michael, yeah. was you were like, oh, like an entire dragon heart, we get one string out of it, woof. Right. And then clearly that's not the case. A dragon heart can comes into string. Oh, gross, so gross. Um, <laughs> like turns into strings, so it produces yeah. a lot. And that's still really gross. But yeah, cool. I like flowers more. This is better. That's very interesting to think. Because like with the phoenix, Fox only gave out two feathers and he was like, I'm done. And with unicorn tail hair, it's like there's a bunch of tail hairs, but who knows like, I don't know if unicorns decide how many tail hairs you have, but it's like with the heartstring, like Sarah has explained how like when you cook it, it like dis- disintegrates into all the strings. So it's like, does that mean there are more dragon heartstring wands out there? Like a possibility you would get more out of the dragon, but it's like, or are you less likely to get a dragon heart? So, heh, I don't know. I don't know either. I That's an interesting question. How many dragons are being killed for for their parts. I know that their their parts are a lot of ingredients and like different potions and stuff. So I wonder how many like what if that's what happens like and if um after watching Tiger King I have like really horrible feelings about any animals in cages but like I'm wondering if in dragon things they die of old age and then they harvest all their parts or whatever. Sure. Like like a more um like natural and like ethically sourced you're utilizing all of the parts of yeah. an already dead animal yeah. instead of basically raising it just to, you know, turn it into a dragon heartstring wand and some cool skull decoration for somebody's classroom and like also shoes and a purse or That's the fantasy or dragon yeah. hide gloves. We know the <laughs> dragon hide gloves are a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And dragon hide jackets that uh, Fred and George wear. Oh. I feel like wand lore is extremely dirty and extremely unethical because like I I just like think of like those just my image of like the stacks of boxes with all these wands but it's like Fox was a privately owned bird so of course Dumbledore could determine how many feathers to give out but if like there's (laughs) this doesn't exist and it's not a real conversation but I'm just thinking about it it's like if there's just like wild phoenixes out there like do these wand capture people like try to capture these phoenixes and like steal all their feathers to like sell them like i don't know it seems dirty i bet you they do that's that's totally it it's super cringe and also are they going out and killing white river monsters and stealing their spines like because that's that's one of the cores too that's on um where do we find That's that? the magic the, in North America. Yeah, on the Makuza pamphlets, yeah. on like the wand registry papers. It was like in the article that, that the maker of those wands knew a secret for harvesting those that nobody else knew. Yeah, but is so- that secret like she knows where to find them and kill them? <laughs> like- <laughs> exactly. She knows where the nest is. Yeah, like she knows where the nest is to like get them. <laughs> 
The secret is she can harvest them without killing them, and she just is very Michael, gentle to them. Michael, please tell me them. how you remove a spine without killing the thing. From the river monster. You ask politely, oh, and it's, it scratches up against a rock, and there and it you grows go. a new spine it, and gives you yeah, the it's old like blood. it's like deer. Right. It's like it's like uh, the horns. It they okay. they fall off. You know, it's well, nice. I also no, I, I go along sleep. with the fantasy you're painting. Let me tell you, yeah. like I I believe that Ollivander has like a really big wealth of knowledge and like has a web of people that like the Weasley brother Bill is it Bill that does the dragons or Charlie Charlie. Sure. Charlie. Charlie. So he ha- he has the connect with Charlie. Charlie's like, yo, we just had a dragon kick it. Like, what do you want from it before the people come and get it for the the gloves and the other bits? So right. like, I'm I'm believing this full fantasy that I've painted that it, it's super ethical and and not disgusting and filthy and dirty like it actually probably is. So right, and they're scavenging a thing that's already dead. Also, something that I just thought of, we need to think about the actual the definition of spine here. I I feel bad that I've brought it up and probably given everyone the the wrong idea. I had it in my mind, spines as in vertebrae, backbone and everything. But also think about porcupines. Porcupines have spines, Mm. those quills are their spines. So that's probably what it is. And that's like a lot better fitting for (laughs) the core of a wand than an actual vertebrae. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, I don't know how you're going to like continue swimming down river when they take your entire spine out of your body, but okay. So I I apologize, Michael, for being so aggressive to you. Yeah, I was pretty aggro too. I I, I accept your apology. I never apologize to Michael about anything, but um, (laughs) whatever helps us sleep better at night, thinking about the ethical consumption of fake mythical characters. (laughs) Yeah, right. And in thinking about phoenix feathers, I always, the way I always imagined it was that there's not an entire feather on the inside of Harry's wand. I, I always think, it, you know, like feathers, they come off and like, you, you run your fingers over a feather and it's like in little, they're not hairs, but it's like they're little pieces, like they're little, you know, what am I trying it, to say? Yeah, yeah, it's like the, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and so I always, I always pictured that maybe Fox and Voldemort and Harry's wands were all special, of course, because everything about Harry Potter is special. But um, for the typical Phoenix Feather wand, that it's just like kind of a just a little piece, like like a single hair from a unicorn. It's not an entire hair, like a tail. So one feather probably gets you pretty far. We're starting to think that this whole cores in wands thing is just utter nonsense (laughs) like i just kind of have finally arrived at i don't like the idea of cores and wands because we're aware that wandless magic can be done it's done in other cultures it's done by you know people who are really good at focusing intently on doing their magic and whatever that they don't need that physical representation a thing that lets them point and shoot the wand being it and like Newt's commander has a wand that doesn't have a core. So why do we still have wands with cores? Is this like a crutch? Does this make us feel better? What yes. does these like what purpose does a dragon heartstring actually serve? Yeah, I mean, I think that like if Newt can do it, and I I ultimately think it's one of that good old boys club thing. That's how it's always been done. So that's how we're gonna keep doing it. Like no one other than Newt has challenged that. And granted, Newt did that in the 1920s, so really they really should have gotten it together by now. Which is back to my back on my my horse of like this is done ethically now because there's too many people that were like, I want a vegan wand, suck it. But I don't know. I I like to think that there's more opportunity and like more options for vegan wands, kind of like um, prom dresses now. Prom dresses in the early like 2000s were absolute trash and the worst thing that I've ever worn in my life. And now fashion has come such a long way and the kids got all the options for prom dresses. So I'm I'm going to believe that in 2020, the world is shit, but you're, you can get a vegan wand. That's my hot take. Yeah, do you think oh. it was like the Ollivanders had like a legacy they were like, oh, they're the best. Oh, you just you just go to Ollivanders. It's a Diagon Alley. It's right down. It's right. You go to Gringotts. You go to Ollivanders. It's like you make a day out of it. But it's like, no, there, there's other ones out there. <laughs> Etsy popped up. They got real good ones. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Sarah. We love you. That was amazing. Thank you. 
So the next one is from Craig. And I uh, this one goes back to when we were talking about Arabella Fig and kind of like, why is she involved at all? Like, how, what is her backstory? And Craig has a bit of headcanon about this, which I'm going to summarize. And that um, since she's a squib, Craig kind of imagines that um, Mrs. Fig might have come from like a prominent pureblood family. And because she was a squib, she would have been kind of exiled from her family. And so Dumbledore being kind of like the, the muggle born and squib champion would have gotten connected with her and saying hey this is a raw deal why don't you come hang out with me and come take down this pureblood supremacist who is Voldemort and so um, because Voldemort really underestimates squibs and doesn't really recognize them or see them as important um, then Mrs. Fig would have been the perfect person to spy on Harry because Voldemort and well not spy but you know like be close by to, um, to keep an eye on Harry for Dumbledore because if a wizard was living close by then Death Eaters and Voldemort would have paid more attention, but nobody would pay attention to a squib. So she's basically the perfect person to be in that position. And so uh, Craig feels that she was there because um, Dumbledore knew about her family and wanted to help her out. I love that. Yeah, I love that too. That's an awesome theory. I like that. And it, it is believable. Like, obviously, that's why he had her there because it wouldn't draw any attention. So I, yeah. I fully buy that. I'm, yeah. I'm there with it too. Mrs. Fig <laughs> subverting his expectations. Voldemort, I mean. Canon accepted. Because I don't know if we had talked about like why Mrs. Fig like she can't cast magic, she can't do spells. Like what? How, why is it useful to have her there? I mean, and Michael, so, you probably said that, and we probably yeah, I probably you. said that probably. <laughs> Because uh, <laughs> like who you around <laughs> in an emergency, a wizard or a cat lady? But but yeah, just being that Harry was in such a secretive position, it really makes sense that somebody who could totally be under the radar and wouldn't be on a ministry um, like registry because they keep track of where all the wizards live, but they don't keep track of squibs. Mm. So she, there would be no record of her with the ministry. So whenever they took over the ministry, they wouldn't have known that she was there. How do you get off that if you move and? <laughs> don't tell them like do they still follow you do you have like a tracking device I guess if you're over 17 they can't you would just be missing you have to fall off the grid yeah that's what i'm wondering i'm wondering like how easy it is to fall off the wizard grid just send an owl to you and follow it <laughs> that's what i mean like you know it would be really terrible to be a squid like yeah. that would be so terrible to deal with like your whole existence when you're a child is like oh you're gonna be a witcher wizard it's gonna be so much fun and then like you you aren't and then you have to deal with that you have to like go into another society that you're not even used to to like like mystic had to immerse in muggle society and she's not a, like she's a squid, she's not a muggle like she like that's not her like upbringing so i feel like if she had a really like accepting and still like warm family and everything and and they made it work with her if it wasn't too much for her to not be able to do magic around the whole family of people that could do magic i don't see any reason like why she couldn't stay but i i guess i understand the idea of like well like i guess i'll do my best to assimilate into the muggle world and see how that works out for me but i mean nobody nobody like forces you out of wizarding society or anything right like we don't we don't think that do we i think it depends on your family and i think somebody get blasted off the black family tapestry for being a squib yes and I think it depends on like societal pressure too, because um, you could have a really supportive family, but like just like the pressure of living in a wizard society, like kind of how Petunia let it get to her a lot where she desperately wanted a witch and then she went to the next level of like hating witches and wizards. And it's like, I feel like just kind of having it in their face would be hard a lot to see like magic being practiced and like with the thought that they can't do it. And also too, think with Arabella Fig, like her character, the, being a member of the Order of the Phoenix, like she wanted to do her part. Like she wanted to, to be that person to, to do something for the resistance. So I think that she was, she literally dedicated her life to the resistance. So she's a pretty cool lady. I also think about Gilderoy Lockhart's sisters a lot when I think about squibs because the two of them were squibs and I can't imagine wanting to be in the family and like come home for Christmas when Gilderoy Lockhart's your dumb brother and like <laughs> boasting about all the dumb stuff he actually didn't do and he just memory swiped people to to say that he did them. Like I, I can imagine that that's really hard to come home to and I hope that the two of them both being squibs found solace like with each other and were able to assimilate into a lifestyle that was good for both 
both of them. But yeah, to Haley's point, I can imagine that like having family doing magic around you could be challenging depending on how you handle it. And maybe depending on how they handle it, maybe exactly. you can bring yourself, you know, to be like, okay, like I, I accept that I can't do magic and whatever. Maybe if your family was good about it, then it would be, you know, way more tolerable. But yeah, if your sure. if your family's garbage, <laughs> if your so, family is is Gilderoy Lockhart and he throws everything in your face about his holidays with hags, I mean, really, <laughs> I can see yeah. not having anything to do with that. Canceled. And I guess I like kind of like that because it's true to real family. Like it's true to family in in our world. Yeah. Thanks, Greg. Our next inquiry came from Sarah. Again, another Sarah. Don't know if it's the same Sarah. About when we talk about incantations and the intention with them. So she was talking about how one example that came to mind was the increased the importance of the spell incantations versus intention comes from the Half-Blood Prince with Sectum Sempra. Harry doesn't know what the spell means or does and casts on Malfoy merely that it's for enemies, despite not knowing what the spell does. The spell goes off as Snape intended when he created it and slices through Draco Malfoy. I think there is a balance to be struck between intention and a spell's incantation wand movement. Without the proper intention behind many spells, they simply will not work. See Harry's attempts at casting the unforgivable curses. However, we also see that Sectum Sempra, and even when learning when Guardian Leviosa, that intention does not wholly win out in the end. Anyways, thanks for the wonderful podcast episode. I'm always delighted to see an episode in my podcast feed. Thank you so much, Sarah. That's so sweet. I, I think you're right. I think that intention does have a lot to do with it, but the incantation and the wand movement does also need to be there. So it's not just intention alone that's going to make the spell work, but I think that without intention, the spell won't work at all. So I feel like you could do a spell with all three, but without the intention, it wouldn't work. Because if Harry had really known the true death of Septim Sempra, like exactly what it did, exactly what it was for, like with the the malice in his heart, as we've said before, <laughs> um, then it probably could have been a lot worse. I mean, he could have separated Draco's head from his body rather than giving him a really nasty cut on his chest. So like Snape cut what like cut um George's ear clean off with Sectum Sempera and he knew exactly what it does. So that makes sense. So our next question comes from Anna Marie, who emailed in to us. And one of her questions for us was, do you think that when it comes to legitimacy that you can feel when someone's using legitimacy on you? Because the movies tend to make it seem that way, but the books don't always do it that way. So what do we think about that? I think that it depends on the person doing it, whether they want you to know or not. I also feel like it depends on if you have had it done to you often. Um, because in Fantastic Beasts, it seems like Tina can tell when Queenie's reading her mind. And Queenie just does it kind of automatically, so it's not even something that she tries to do so much and i imagine being sisters it's like pretty hard the lines are a little bit blurred there so to me it seems like tina knows usually when it happens i'm sure not every time but it seemed like in some of their interactions she could tell that she was doing it yeah i would agree um like when it comes to queenie's powers especially just because she seems so particularly good at legitimacy i mean when she's um walking through the lobby trying to get hold of jacob to escape she reads that dude's mind about him having an affair with that witch in the lobby so he and he's like how do you know that so yes i would think that maybe just in queenie's case because she's especially powerful that you wouldn't be able to feel or know that she's in your head but with other things like snape kind of like breaking their way into your head because yeah, i think queenie describes her powers as just kind of like reading what's what people are putting out there like she just has an antenna so she isn't necessarily looking for information or like delving into people's minds she's just seeing what's there um like whatever is on their mind presently where snape and other people like they're digging for stuff so yeah i would agree with that that's where you, when you would feel it and know what's going on I bet there's also, so like she was born with that capability and everything. She was born with that power. All that I can think is like, how would I be able to tell if there's like, we don't know if people can just like feel it. According to the movies, it really seems like you can feel it. But in the books, all that we ever know is that somebody has to wave a wand and use a spell. So unless you're witnessing somebody waving the wand and using a spell, how would you possibly know that, you know, your your mind is being invaded and read and all your memories and whatever are up for grabs? Yeah, exactly. 
I don't know. I, f- I feel like you wouldn't know unless in again, in Tina's case, she's experienced it her whole life. So like, I, I imagine that she's very familiar with the sensation, mm-hmm. whereas just somebody on the street has no idea and doesn't know like what it feels like to have someone read your mind and like, doesn't even know what to, what to look for as far as that goes. Right. Like if it's an unsuspecting attack or whatever, you might just think, oh, like my head feels, I don't know, like brain fog or I have a headache or exactly. whatever. If you feel anything at all. Exactly. Well, Perry does kind of point out like that he always felt like before he knew that Dumbledore could read minds, like he always felt that Dumbledore was like giving him an intense stare and always like talk about how like his piercing blue eyes were piercing into Harry and like all that stuff. So maybe he did get an inclination that he could feel like something happening, but he didn't know how to recognize what that feeling was. It's like Hmm. he's like he sees this mentor figure like staring intently at him. and Maybe he just thinks like. Oh, maybe he's just thinking of something to say. Like, I don't know what Harry never really had any thoughts, but he always would say like Dumbledore, like he would always, it would always be like in the context of like Dumbledore was like seeing into me. Like, exactly. And if you aren't familiar with like Legilimens or any of it, you wouldn't know that he actually was seeing into you. And I imagine that again, like if you haven't had that experience, I, I would like to think that after Harry did all of that with Snape, that he knew what the sensation was like. And that's why he was able to like, understand that he could see things because like i know that he could see it in his dreams and all of that but i'm wondering if he was able to identify that sensation a little bit easier after having gone through that yeah because i mean for all harry knew that no one could read minds like that wasn't a thing but as soon as you find out that it's something that is that could happen like i feel like i would be freaked out Like, you, like if, if I found out, like, someone I knew could read my thoughts, that would be such a terrifying experience to, like, have your, like, the safety of your mind, like, breached, you know? like I don't imagine growing up as Tina that you I never know. once had a safe space in your own mind. That is freaky. No wonder she doesn't trust anything. We yeah, just no need to give Tina more credit. <laughs> Poor Tina. We really should. We really should give her more credit on this podcast. <laughs> also, to that and how many people don't know that legitimacy is a thing. It's something that's like whispered about because I don't think people talk about it that that often. Just like with Nymphadora, how they don't talk about being a metamorphic magi, magus, magus, they don't talk about that. So like, (laughs) thank you, Michael. So if you don't know, kind of coming across that in the real world is few and far between. Very true. Yeah, thank you, Anna Marie, for that comment. So this next one comes from my friend CJ. We've been friends since we were in college, and he is very funny. So I'm going to read out this message he wrote because it's it's an essay, but it's really funny. CJ says, I have two things that I really wanted to bring up to you guys to get your opinion on. The first is that while it wasn't necessary for us to know about a wizard's practice public defecation, it is something that many people in other countries continue to practice to this day. Knowing how stuck in their ways wizards are in the books, I'm honestly not surprised at all this was a thing. Especially knowing that the fact that people used to toss their waste into the city streets until it became illegal for good reason. The second thing I wanted to bring up is a post from a friend of ours about transfiguration and assumed life. He brought up that during the first task of the Triwizard Tournament, Cedric turned a rock into a Labrador, which was able to fool the dragon for a bit, but not too long. Based on what I read, the dog was able to move around, so it's not like he made a rock that looks like a dog. Based on cross-species transfiguration, when a human is turned into an animal, they now have the intelligence of that animal. With that being said, if an object is turned into an animal that is able to move around and function like that animal, is it alive? Also, there is untransfiguration, which says a wizard must know the original state of the object to change it back. Yet, did McGonagall know that the weasel was Malfoy, or Ferret, was Malfoy, or did she assume based on the people around it? If that rock dog were to die, does it change back into a rock? This also brings up... Let's pause. Should we pause there, or should we keep going? (laughs) You can pause there. Let's pause there. Great point, CJ, to the public defecation, because absolutely that was a thing that happened. Uh, so I know that we spoke at length about the vanishing poop stuff uh, in our hygiene episode. So yeah, maybe we shouldn't have been as surprised when uh, people were doing that <laughs> out in the streets all the time back in 
uh, times of yore. So yeah, the, the so the, the Labrador thing is very interesting to me because in most of the transfiguration lessons from the books, we see them turning creatures into inanimate objects. So beetles into buttons, right? We see them turn um, tortoises into teapots. It's not until they get higher into the transfiguration stuff that they start turning inanimate things into animate things. So that's why Cedric transfiguring a rock into a Labrador would have been seen as impressive magic because apparently it's really hard to do and something that only a higher level student like someone in their seventh year would be able to do. So like a facsimile of life. So when you're saying, is it alive? I would say no. I would say that it's mimicking life that like the snake that um, Serpent Sortia that summons a snake from nothing. I think that we've discussed also that that snake is not a real snake. It's like a magical construct that looks and mimics like a snake. And um, the better you are casting that spell, the more lifelike and realistic your snake is. And some people might cast it and it's just like a water snake, <laughs> like we've talked about. <laughs> uh, and sometimes it's like a really menacing serpent. So that that's my thought on that. I have a question for us that is kind of upsetting me now. If you're an animal and you've been turned into an inanimate object, are you no longer sentient? And what is that weird in-between space? If you're a button, (laughs) do you remember what it was like to be sentient and alive? Or do you just go dark for a minute? I would think you'd go dark. I agree. If you have the mind capacity of whatever you're being turned into, so if you turn a teacup into a rat, then the teacup now has the brain of a rat. So I think that the reverse is also true, that if you turned a rat into a teacup, the rat now has the brain of a teacup, which is to say it doesn't have one. So then CJ asks, so if the rock dog were to die, does it change back into a rock? So I would think that it would be like a facsimile of life. So it can't die. Like you couldn't like stab it with a knife and then expect it to die like a dog would. It would, it, it, it's not a living thing like with life in it. Um, I guess unless you transfigured it really, really well and you gave it all its proper organs and all its proper stuff, I would think that it would just be, it would look like a dog. But what if, okay, but what if you did transfigure it really good and gave it all its organs and did all the things? Hmm. Then I guess it would just, its organs would stop functioning because it had been stabbed and it would bleed out. So So yes, it would die. So it would look like it was dying. Well, I... Well, no, I guess if it was really, really good, then yeah, its organs would stop functioning. And then eventually when the enchantment wore off, it would turn back into a rock. Okay. But the enchantment would have to wear off for it to turn back, not because it died. Right. Because we know that transfigurations and charms wear off. So Except for Lily's fish, because she's such a good <laughs> witch that it never wore off and that it didn't die until she died, because she's such a good witch. Right. She's good at fish magic. This also brings up how transfiguration and conjuration work in general. Transfiguration in this case seems more heavy in math than chemistry. I've seen explanations that transfiguration works on a molecular level, meaning molecules and atoms are completely rearranged to form a new object. This is unlike how we assume alchemy works. So a person can rearrange the molecules of a rock and then turn it into an animate dog. But there are canon rules that say you cannot create money or food. That just moves into conjuration. It's said that you cannot just create something out of nothing. You have to know where it is to conjure it. But if you have an object, you can enlarge or multiply it. Since conjuration branches from transfiguration, then it would apply that to enlarge or multiply something, you would need more molecules since we cannot just create matter. So where, oh, where do all these molecules come from? (laughs) I don't like where this is going. It says, let's talk about vanishment. There is a whole branch dedicated to causing an object to cease to exist, but remember that we cannot create or destroy matter, so there must be molecules somewhere, or just floating around that can just be used for transfiguration spells. What am I getting at here? When it is they, when, what am I getting at here is when they enlarge or multiply an item or a food, those molecules are from old wizard poop. This doesn't even... <laughs> 
And this doesn't even get into the other argument of multiple transfiguration. You cannot transfigure a dead body back to life. You can, but you can transfigure a person into a monkey, like the rock into a dog. If I transfigured a dead body into an animal, would that animal be animate? So, so I could technically transfigure that animal again back into a human, not untransfiguration, but a new transfiguration. And what sort of monster am I creating here? <laughs> wow, round of applause for CJ. Cheers for CJ. Snapped wow. up. CJ, this is amazing. And I never knew that you were actually the author of the Harry Potter series all this time. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah CJ. Um, CJ redacted. <laughs> CJ redacted, professor of poop, um, knower of all vanishing things, has created the Harry Potter series. He is the author, so... Give him a round of applause, everyone. He's he's been found. <laughs> I love the idea that poop is just everywhere, and um, it makes total sense. It's the most sense that we've made on this podcast thus far. That's where all the magic in the world to enlarge something comes from. Just all that poop. Centuries and centuries and centuries. Of yeah, poop. yeah. I it. I guess it all lines up. I mean, I, I I imagined when things are vanished, talking about that molecular level thing, that the atoms, like you know, like it's so much energy that the the atoms just just go everywhere and it just dissipates into non-being or into everywhere as the thing goes. So that lines up to me. So that means that there are just vanished molecules and atoms and things floating around in the air which it would make sense that that's what magic would pull from to recreate stuff, um, make it bigger, smaller, something like that. I love this and hate this so much. (laughs) I can't even begin with the abomination that CJ was talking about. Transfiguring dead bodies sounds like necromancy, and we're not about that here. So I'm just going to leave that one alone. So thank you everybody so much for sending us those comments. Um, It's really fun to just speculate and dive deep into canon and to use canon as examples for other canon, which I think is uh, what's really fun about this. Like we've seen this played out here. So how would it play out there? Um, That's great. So feel free to send us uh, your comments or questions. You can email us at homemybutterbeerpod at gmail.com. You can message us on Instagram. You can go to uh, anchor.fn slash homemybutterbeer to leave us a voice message message and uh maybe we'll do another mailbag episode like this and play that on the show so we haven't just gotten questions but we also got some really nice comments and some nice reviews and um if you enjoy the show and want to leave us a review wherever you listen we always appreciate that um this first one was a message from divine so uh divine said um this is so odd to email people i don't know but i guess it's the age we live in i just thought i would take a moment to thank you for doing your harry potter podcast i'm in my mid-20s and love harry potter and have always gravitated to it during tough times for comfort and you guys' voices has done the exact same thing it's so nice to put on in the background during rough days to enjoy the fun and silliness of the wizarding world thank you for sharing your passion for harry potter with the world divine that's so nice thank you we also got a really sweet email from one of our listeners, Marielle, who wrote a really excellent article in their university newspaper called Reclaiming Magic, Harry Potter Fans Advocate for Trans Rights. We were quoted and uh, Marielle said that they used our uh, Jake Harris tweet episode from January as a resource to help unpack everything that's been going on in the world of Harry Potter fandom. Wow, an amazing writer. Holy mackerel. So good. Did you guys happen to read it? I did read it. It was absolutely incredible. Thank you so much, Marielle. It was amazing. It was such a powerful read. And I'm so honored that you used our podcast for it. It was just amazing. So thank you again, Marielle. That's so sweet. Thank you for, for letting us know. We have another review from Mom of One for now. I've dabbled with other Harry Potter podcasts, but this is something special. These four bring so much awareness to the Harry Potter universe that I never thought of and help navigate some of the uh, trickier aspects of it in a logical manner. Looking at you, Michael, and your levels of canon seriously put everything in such a great perspective. If you are a Harry Potter fan and want to feel like you're part of a great conversation about things you were always curious about in the Harry Potter universe, then you found the right podcast. Thank you so much. This is really incredible to hear. We just have really bizarre conversations uh, with each other about things we enjoy. So to know that other people enjoy it is really, really touching. And I can't express how much it means to us. I'm glad you like the levels. (laughs) Michael and his canon levels are the best. Yes. We really should have a shirt with all the levels. 
Maybe they keep changing. Next, that'll be our next merch. 2020 <laughs> levels of canon. <laughs> Get it next year. It'll change. Little pieces jump here and there as we learn more information. So uh, <laughs> that one, we'll have to date it. Uh, exactly. up, last updated uh, July 2020. <laughs> The last one comes from my best friend in the entire world. <laughs> so it's not biased at all. So that, I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> but the fact that she went on iTunes and left a, a message meant a lot. Whitney says, I really enjoyed listening to this podcast. It felt like I was part of a group of friends chatting and sharing theories about the world of Harry Potter. I thought that the content was very fun and natural. Nothing sounded forced or rehearsed. I look forward to the next podcast. Well, thanks, Whitney. As you know, we definitely do not have the time to rehearse anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> <what> <laughs> <laughs> After all the all the fun research we do, we do not have time to practice anything. So we really have fun just like nat- chatting naturally. Yeah, I think that's what's scary is some of the conversation is a little too natural sometimes and we don't realize what we say, which is fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. And by that, she means not fun when you have to edit everything. No, no. <laughs> when no, we message you and say, wait, um, <laughs> at 10, 16, can you snip that thing? No, I, I have to say, after we record, I often don't edit it for a few weeks. So I forget completely what we even talked about. And sometimes I have to text the group and say, like, I can't believe how funny this was. Like, I don't even remember talking about it. And like, wow, this was hilarious. So it's really exciting to hear it from other people. And it's not just me that thinks we're sometimes pretty funny. Yeah, it is fun. It's like listening to a whole new podcast. Like, I don't remember talking about any of this. (laughs) (laughs) Every time. So thank you everyone so much for your messages and your comments. Um, please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. That's great. That helps promote the show. Um, check us out at Home My Butterbeer Pod um, at, on Instagram. Feel free, anything you want to send us, and maybe it'll make it onto a show in the future. This has been your favorite podcast about all things Wizarding World canon, Hold My Butterbeer. You can find us on Instagram at Hold My Butterbeer Pod and on Facebook at Hold My Butterbeer Podcast and email us at holdmybutterbeerpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.